I know some of you are going to be disappointed. We've started every service for the last couple of weeks with a Beatles song. We're not going to do that today. But be patient, because there will be one coming. But I have a very important video that I would like you to watch, so watch up on the screens. Tina's going to try to work it out. have to watch until at least it says that little thing on the bottom, final. Final. Okay, I need you to stand. Skull. Skull. I can't hear you. Gellerhorn in the back there. That's just cool. It's fun, the fact that at Journey in Our Church, we take God seriously. We just don't take ourselves too seriously. I have to say, one of the reasons I love this church is I was able to sit, Julie and I went so that she could pick out my Viking shirt for me. And we were talking to someone that said, this just never ceases to amaze me. I'm picking out a Viking shirt to preach in. It would not have happened where I grew up. And so that's exciting. So here's, I, I know that um, in, the, in the prayer a moment ago, um, Amber prayed that distractions would be removed. And I know that that's where many of you are at right now, thinking about the game this afternoon. One of, I, I haven't mentioned any names, but one of our elders, who's not Paul Johnson, but one of our elders um, is a, a Packers fan. And he didn't know what we were going to do today. And I walked up at the beginning, before the service started, and I said, I'm, I'm just apologizing in advance for the first two minutes of the service. And he looked at me, and I was like, oh. <laughs> so we can, we can have a little bit of fun. But now we can put that out of our heads. It's so funny. I, I get really nervous to come up here. Um, every, always have. Sure, I always will. And I had a number of people come up to me today, like always, and say, um, are you nervous today? And they, say, they always say that, and it's like, well, you know, a little bit. They weren't talking about preaching. <laughs> They're talking about the game later. And I said, okay, I'm, I, one thing at a time. Let me be nervous for this, and then I'll be nervous for that after we get done, and that'll all be good. So with that out, we can start focusing on that again later. Um, here's what we're going to do. I want to start today by making a statement that I think is going to shock Many of you. It's one that may even knock the wind out of your sails a little bit. Are you ready? Many people who think that they are Christians aren't. Many people who go by the label of Christian are not followers of Christ. Having said that, welcome to Journey in Our Church. Aren't you glad that you came? <laughs> We're in a series. And we've been talking about, um, we've been just kind of having a little fun with the Beatles, and, and you need to understand, I'm not saying that I think they're the be-all to end-all. I'm not saying that they, you know, we're, we're using their stuff with a lot of fun, and I'm not saying it's theologically correct, it couldn't be further from the truth, we're just having fun with this. 
But you say you want a revolution. We're talking about that for the next, for the first couple weeks and the next couple weeks about the fact that we make New Year's resolutions, and as we said, only eight percent of the people who make those follow through. You know, by halfway through the year, we do want to change in our life, and and we recognize that at, during transition times like New Year's stuff, we think of that. We think, you know, I'd like to change this and this, and and we decided that what we really need is not to make another resolution. We need a revolution in our life. And so that's what we're doing. We're going, and what we're, the way we're doing that is we're looking at some very big things that if we get a grasp on these things, they can, they can make that revolution in our life. And we're doing that by kind of zipping quickly through uh, the book of Ephesians, a, Paul, a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. It's interesting. It was a, it was a many consider it a, they call it a circular letter. And he wrote it to the church in Ephesus, but then they would pass it on to another church and to another church and another church. And we're reading it now 2,000 years later. And this is a letter to Christians. So every, I want everybody to listen, whether you claim Jesus as Savior or not. I want you to listen because there, there's some amazing things um, that, that Paul shares that when, when people see that, Christians see that, it's like, oh, that's so good. People who are Christians see that and say, well, that sounds kind of good. Wouldn't mind that. So the first week we talked about identity. Because, and if you don't have these, we used to have CDs, but at the moment, if you just go to iloveourchurch.com, the first post on that page um, lists all the different ways that you can listen to the sermon audio online. But the first week we talked about identity, and, and to me, this is a huge one, because too many people don't know who they are. They think they know who they are, or they, they think they are what other people think they are. But we really need to know who we are. And we spent the whole week talking about our identity. Last week we talked about our capacity and how we have, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have this absolutely crazy capacity. And we forget about that. We live lives that are mundane and boring, not realizing the capacity that we have. This week we're going to talk about a subject very near and dear to my heart. Growing up was a huge deal for me, and that is security. And the and and same thing happened in the first service. When I said that, the security team all looked up. It's like, I'm not talking about you. Different kind of security that we're going to talk about today. And I understand that um, we start out a little negative when we say some people who think they're Christians really aren't. I understand that's a little negative. We're going to get a little bit more negative before we get positive. I talk to a lot of people. I talk to a lot of people about Jesus. I talk to a lot of people about being um, followers of Jesus, about being saved, about having that relationship with Jesus. And, and here's what I have to do way too often. I have to almost show people that they're really not saved before they can get saved. Because they think they are for all weird reasons. So today, we're going to talk about two, what I would call technically, two very popular subjects. One of them is only popular because of the broad scope of participation in it. It's popular because everybody does it. So the first thing from our section in Ephesians, if you're taking notes, we have an outline in the worship folder for you to follow along. There's a couple places for you to write. I've tried to leave enough room in the margin because I think there's some things that some of you are going to want to jot down that's going to help you um, both now and later. But the first thing from our section in Ephesians we're going to talk about is the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of sin. Because sin is serious. Far too often we trivialize it. We call it by softer names. And all I can think about is many years ago, decades ago, 
I was in youth ministry, and I was teaching a bunch of kids. There was like 50 kids out here, and the, there was leaders with the kids interspersed throughout the kids. There was always just one leader. Never thought he should sit with the kids, which always, it's like, you're a youth leader. You should be with youth. But he would always stand up in the back, and so it's like, whatever. So I'm teaching, and I'm talking about sin. And I was saying this very thing in that we too often trivialize it. We call it by softer names. And I said, here's a for instance. I said, you have people who, um, they, they are committed to each other, they are married, and, and one of them has an affair. I said, it's not an affair. And just to get their attention, I had the, the table in front of me like that. I pounded on the table as I said that. I said, it's not an affair. It's adultery. And I tried really hard not to look at any of you as I said that. And the reason is because decades ago when I did that, I didn't necessarily want to stare at any of the kids. So I just looked up when I said that. And I made eye contact with the leader who was standing in the back. And I said, it's not an affair. It's adultery. As I looked at him. And as I looked at him, the funniest thing happened. The color, literally, the color drained out of his face. It's like, wow, that really impacted him. We found out six months later he was having an affair. He thought I knew. <laughs> God knew. <laughs> but the truth was, he wasn't having an affair. He was committing adultery. And we don't want to say that because that sounds too harsh. We want to soften it. We want to say, it's just a little slip up. <laughs> it's not just a little slip up. <clears throat> Sin is not just, oh my bad. Okay, Sin is committing cosmic treason before God. Whether it's big or little. When the God of the universe says, do this and we do this, that's sin. The truth is, we are natural born sinners. I am a natural born sinner. I have not had to take private sinning lessons. I knew from a young age how to do it and became a professional at it, okay? So we don't have to learn how to do it. It's just there by nature, and it's fun. Sin is fun. And I know some of you think you shouldn't say that from the public. Well, it's true. You know it's fun. I know it's fun. If it wasn't fun, we wouldn't do it. It's natural, and it's fun. That's why we do it. And if you've, ever, if you've had kids or if you've seen kids... You know it's true. You don't have to teach them how to sin. They'll teach little Johnny how to disobey. We don't have to do that. It comes naturally. In our house, we have more than one, but personally, Drew and I have a dog. And the dog does something really bizarre. He acts like a dog. <laughs> now, I understand that there are some times we ascribe human traits to him and to what he's doing, but that's our thing, not his. He acts like a dog. You know why? Yeah, it's not a trick question. He's a dog. That's his nature. He just does that. So what Paul is going to do in Ephesians is he's going to talk about the seriousness of sin and touch on the nature part of it. He's talking, remember, to Christians. And what he's going to talk about is as a Christian, we've been rescued from the graveyard. Now, I, I've been to way too many graveyards. I, I, I've, I've been in very difficult, sad situations there. I've been to way too many graveyards. But I'll tell you, I have a graveyard memory that will never leave me. And it has nothing to do with the funeral. I was a kid. And 
the first part of the story is very fuzzy to me because the second part of the story like took over and I don't remember anything else anymore. But for whatever reason, we were out in the country, southern Ohio, out in the country, driving somewhere, you know, long stretches of road with nothing around. And we were stopped for some reason, and I don't know why we were stopped or what was going on. I just remember getting out of the car and wanting to, to go from this point to this point as I'm walking around and I'm all alone. And there was a graveyard in this, uh, outside this little town. And I remember seeing this graveyard, and as a kid, it's like, oh, come and walk through the graveyard, you know? And so I'm cutting through the graveyard, and I'm walking through, and you, it, it's actually a fascinating thing to do. You need to do it. You look at the tombstone, you see when people are born and die, and it's a good reminder that everybody dies. But as I'm walking through there, what, what, what caught my attention was, uh, uh, I think they call them mausoleums. They call them mausoleums. And I saw this cool-looking mausoleum. It's a big stone building, kind of ornate, not big, but it's a stone building, kind of ornately carved. And what they would do is they would bury families in those. And it was above ground. They would have places that they would slide the caskets in and put a thing over it, seal it up and stuff. And so I see this cool mausoleum, and two things attracted my attention about it. The first one was the door was not closed, slightly open. Second thing about it was above the door, carved, in, ornately carved in stone, was the name of the family who was being buried in the mausoleum. It said Adams. And I was a little kid, you know, the Adams family mausoleum. I'm going in. I understand. I understand. Probably a stupid thing to do. I'm all alone in the graveyard. I walk into the mausoleum. The doors open, uh, you know, and it doesn't just open. It's like, you know, and I walk in. There's just enough light coming in that I can see all of the people. <laughs> you don't see the people. They're pretty covered up. But you see the places where all the people were buried. And you see there's, te there's uh, carved uh, or uh, etched things under each one of them saying who it is. And I see that one of the places is empty. There's not a cover over it. There's just a hole. And so I walk up to the one and I look at it and I can see there's a tag under it, but it's all dusty. And so I wipe it off with just enough light coming in to see as I wipe it off. And you know what it said? Timothy R. Adams. <laughs> My middle initial is R. I'd like to say I laughed. I was brave. My feet did not touch the ground until I was halfway through the cemetery. That is the quickest I have ever, ever moved. How many of you have been in a graveyard? Most hands went up. Do you know what the truth is? Every single one of you in here has been in a graveyard, spiritually speaking. Because the Bible says, I was dead. You were dead in sin if you don't know Jesus. Here's what Paul says about the seriousness of sin. In Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, he says, As for you, remember he's talking to people who are followers of Jesus, they are Christians, he's going to talk about their past. As for you, you were, that's past tense, you were dead. You know what the word dead means? Dead. <laughs> Flatline. No response. Okay? You were dead in your transgressions and sins. In the graveyard. That's where everybody is before Jesus. In the graveyard. Dead man walking. We may be walking around laughing, smiling, holding jobs, talking to people. But for all practical purposes, we're dead. Spiritually dead. That means no response. 
What can a dead person do? Not much. You know, they don't move. They don't push back. Nothing happens. That's the condition. As for you, which is all of us before Jesus, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. It's about obedience. Here's what you obeyed. You followed the ways of this world. He's going to talk about things that scholars, Bible scholars kind of say there's three big things that are kind of like the, the enemies of followers of Jesus, the enemies of Christians. The first one is this, it's the world. And by that, we don't mean like planet Earth. The world means the, the system, the world system around us. I love, it's not on the screen, but I love the Phillips translation of Romans 12 too. He says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. That, that's what it's about. The world system wants to squeeze you into its mold and to look like them. And he said, before you were dead in your sins and you, you used to follow the ways of the world. So that's the first one. The first thing is the world. The second thing is the verse continues. It says, um, used to follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now in, at work in those who are disobedient. Again, we're going to, the obedience, obeying thing. He says, uh, first was the world. The second thing is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Who's the ruler of the kingdom of the air? It's not God. At this point in history, it's the devil. It's Satan. It's the deceiver. Now, too many people think of, you know, it's like God and Satan fighting. And they're two equal opposite things. God's good, Satan bad. Nothing could be further from the truth. God is God. The sovereign ruler of the entire universe. The devil is a created being who is a thorn in the side right now because God's allowing that. But he is the ruler, it says, of the kingdom of the air. He's not, the, the, the technical term is, is omnipresent. He's not everywhere, but he's got a lot of help. And what he's trying to do is keep people from becoming followers of Jesus. And the ones who are, he has an agenda. You know, you hear God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The devil has a plan for your life too. And John 10 tells us what it is. To steal, to kill, and destroy. That's his plan for your life. Now, he'll do it in fun ways. But when you get done, you'll realize he stole everything, he killed everything of value to you, and he destroyed everything in your life. Because that's his plan. That's what he does. So our enemies are the world and the devil. And then the third thing in verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time. Remember, it's past tense because they're Christians now. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. He's going to talk about the flesh. And when he talks about the flesh, I don't think I really need to explain that in depth. Just look at it this way. Desires. We all have desires. We have natural desires. It just inborn, God-given desires. We have the desire to drink water. We have the desire, and I'm actually going to do that. I didn't have this up here first service. And first service, my tongue was sticking to the roof of my mouth. And it's difficult to talk when that happens. We have natural desires. Um, the desire to drink water. We're, we're thirsty. The desire for food. The desire to procreate. All of those are things that God has given us. But here's what we do. We take a natural, God-given desire and use it in a God-forbidden way. For instance, I could give you a thousand examples. But take eating. 
And he said, we have the desire to eat. We have the desire for food. We take that desire and we take it the wrong direction. We overindulge. We overeat. And we come up with all kinds of, of uh, eating disorders and problems because we're taking a natural God-given thing and, and we're doing it in a way that's not honoring God. Or sex. Take sex, for instance. I love it. When I say that out loud, every head snaps up. <laughs> every time. People take sex and they do it their way and not God's way. It's a natural God-given desire. It's good. But they don't do it God's way. They do it their way. <clears throat> you can see the problem with that just by looking around. All of the, the STDs, all of the guilt, all of the pain, all of the heartache, all of the brokenness when sex is outside of the marriage bed. Because God didn't make his rules so that he would stifle us. He made them because he loves us. And we take these natural God-given desires and we use it in a way that doesn't honor God. The last part of verse 3 is really something to think about for us. It starts out again, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and its thoughts, and it ends like this. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That was the position that we find ourselves in before Jesus. If you don't know Jesus as Savior, if you've not claimed him as Lord and Savior yet, that's the position that you're in. Deserving of wrath. Here's what I call that. If you've never heard this, you might want to write this down. The law of inevitable consequences. It's the law of inevitable consequences because here's the truth. We have free will. We can choose. We talked about that the first week. We can choose our choices. We can't choose our consequences. We want to. And so the problem is, I can't choose to sin and expect wonderful results. We do that every time. I know this isn't what I'm supposed to do, but I'm going to do it, and it's going to turn out good this time. And it never does. We can't choose our consequences. There are natural and inevitable and unavoidable consequences when we sin. One of the big consequences of choosing to sin and disobey God is separation from God. It's not that God leaves you, but God is holy and righteous and perfect, and when we choose disobedience and sin, we break that fellowship. He doesn't leave us. We turn our back on Him. And we don't have the connection that we're looking for. And here's what we fail to see too often. One bad choice, had a bad day, did something wrong, it was this, it was that, one bad choice, and we have committed cosmic treason. Because the standard isn't good enough. The standard is holy. It's not that I'm better than this person. That's not the standard. You can't say, I'm pretty good. You might be pretty good. You might be pretty good compared to me, but you're not holy. It's like, in my entire life, never sinned, never had a bad thought, never did a bad thing. I would say, I'd like to meet that person. <laughs> I did. His name is Jesus. There is nobody else who's ever had that level of obedience and holy. The rest of us, we think it's just about being good enough, and it's not. Because the truth is, you could never be good enough. I could never be good enough. I said we were going to talk about two very popular subjects. So we talk about sin. 
I understand sin is not a popular subject today. It's not a popular subject in our culture, and it's not even a popular subject in our churches. But the Bible talks about sin from cover to cover. You don't even get two chapters in before we start to see what happens. And the whole thing from cover to cover talks about the consequences, the that what happens because of sin. The Bible doesn't shy away from doing that. The seriousness of sin. I said sin is only popular because of the broad scope of participation in it. Because It's popular because we all do it. We all sin, and we all suffer the consequences of those choices. So, struggling with the world, the flesh, and the devil. So many people who think they're saved and aren't, And we are all sinners with its consequences. Feeling good yet? Still glad you came to Journey to Our Church. (laughs) I promised you a Beatles song. We need a transition here. So we're going to have a Beatles song for a transition. And if you know it, um, just, just sing along. The line that I'm looking for comes in right away. It's like the second line. And if you say, I'm not singing a Beatles song in church, don't. I don't care. But I just want you to to listen to what it says, because it's kind of a fun transition. Go ahead and play it. It takes a minute. It's a a slow computer. We need to update. It's old, like me. Move quick. Here we go. Hey, you. It's like, no, no, let's just do that for the rest of the time. (laughs) Here's what I want you to see. What we talked about, the seriousness of sin, that's tough. God took a sad song and made it better. That's what he did. That's what he does. When we get done with what we just got done with, talking about the seriousness of sin, here's how it starts in verse 4. But you got to love the big butts in the Bible. I like big butts. I can't lie. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's extremely important to see those words. Because this is a huge... You're not listening to a word I'm saying. <laughs> okay, here we go. <laughs> He's really taking something that's, that's horrendous and... and, and and damning. And he's going to make it better. And he does that with this transitional word. He says, but... You'll never read that word when you read scripture again. You will think of that every time. I told you why I think of that. I was in a gospel team at college. And we used to travel to churches. And we were the special music. And we'd sing in these churches. And, uh, and then when we get done singing, we'd sit in the front row as the pastor would get up and speak. And we were in this like 900-year-old Baptist church. There was like 2,000 people in it. And the pastor is like, I think it was like 
114, I'm not sure. He was pretty old. We got done singing, sat down in the front row, and I am not kidding. His sermon was about this. I think it was even this verse. But he talked about God's butt. And God's butt is a big butt. But man's butt is a little butt. He had no idea what he was saying. We're sitting in the front row with 2,000 people behind us going like this. Trying not to laugh. I have never read a verse in the Bible that started with butt again the same way. But it's also got me thinking about why it's there. And this is huge. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> but because of his great love for us, because of his great love for us, God, and it's going to tell us that. See, the thing is, it's, we talk about the seriousness of sin, but when we transition to God's love, you see, God is love. We talk about us loving people. God is love. And even if there were no such thing as sinners like that, God would still love. No sinners like you and me, God would still love. Because it's his nature. It's part of his very being. Love is one of God's intrinsic attributes. It's just who he is. And when this love is related to sinners like us, here's what it becomes. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in, here's the first thing, mercy. If you're taking notes, you might want to circle that. He made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. He, made us, he got us out of the graveyard. It is by grace. That's the other word you want to circle. The mercy and the grace. It is by grace you have been saved. You see, love becomes mercy and grace. And those riches make it possible for sinners to be saved. Out of the graveyard that we were in, made alive by mercy and grace. So what is mercy and grace? They're different. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. You're driving down the road. You're speeding. You know you're speeding. And that whole horrible sinking feeling that occurs when you see the car behind you have the flashing lights. And he pulls you over and you know you're caught. You're doing over the speed limit. He comes up to the car and he says, you were speeding. Yeah, I know I was speeding. He says, I'll tell you what. I'm going to let you go with a warning this time. I've heard that happens. I've never experienced that. I don't know if that's actually true. I think it's an urban legend, but some people say that that's happened. When he says, I'm going to let you go, you know what that is? mercy. It's because that's when we don't get what we deserve. Grace is when we get what we don't deserve. So I was speeding and maybe he pulled up to the car and I was a little bit obnoxious. And he's yelling. I admit this never happened. I don't do that. He's yelling. I'm yelling. And, and he says, okay, I'm not going to give you a ticket, but I'd like to take you out for coffee. We'll have a donut. He's a cop. So we'll have a donut. <laughs> And we go out and we just have a good time. You know what that is? Grace. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. And grace is when we get what we don't deserve. So again, verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. We have been made alive. Resurrected. And this is important. 
Jesus doesn't leave us in the graveyard. That'd be horrible. I'm dead, buried, I get raised from the dead and got to live in a graveyard. That would be horrible. There's stuff for us to do. You see, your conversion to Jesus, my conversion is not the end game. It's the beginning game. Again, verses 4 and 5, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. For it is by grace you have been saved. And here it goes. It gets even better as we move into verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ. Remember, he's talking to Christians who have stepped across that line. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ. That, I don't understand that. It, it blows me away. What did Jesus do? He died on the cross for our sins. The Bible says we died with him. <clears throat> he was raised from the dead. We were raised with him. And he is now seated in the heavenly realms. And this says we are seated with him. Did you catch that? I think, no, I'm not. I'm standing right here. As far as God's concerned, it's done deal. Signed, sealed, delivered. I am positionally seated in the heavens with Jesus because of what he did. It's by grace that we've been saved. Why did he do that? Why does he do that? Well, because he loves us. But Paul explains it this way, next verse, in order that he did those things, um, raised us up, seated us with him, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. There's that word riches again. I don't care what your, your bank account or your FICO score is. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are rich. You may not be spending it. That's what we're going to talk about today. But you are rich. And he did this in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You see, I am a trophy of God's grace. Sitting in a trophy case. You, if you're a follower of Jesus, are a trophy of God's grace. We should be trophies of God's grace. We're put there, it says, for everyone to see the incomparable riches of his grace expressed by his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That means people need to see that. The people around you need to see that. They need to have it. And he does that by holding us up for, us, for them to see. And they realize it's not us. That's not Tim. That's what Jesus did. So we're going to transition from the seriousness of sin as we move into the next couple verses. It's the, this, these verses have been a transition. We're going to now talk about the greatness of grace. The seriousness of sin and now the greatness of grace and here's what's extremely important for you to understand. Those two things go together. Because when I understand the seriousness of sin, then I understand better the greatness of grace. And the more I understand the greatness of grace, the better I understand the seriousness of sin, the cost of sin. Those two things play with each other. To understand salvation better, we need to get both of those. But to understand salvation better, 
to really understand what salvation means so that you're not one of those people who thinks they're saved and aren't, you need to understand three words. Very simple. By, through, and for. Very simple words. By, through, and for. Here's what it says, starting in verse 8 of Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved. What are you saved by? Grace. I said that. We're saved by grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You see, I'm saved by grace. Earlier it said that we're saved by grace. It says it again here. What that means is there is nothing I can do to earn it. Grace is when we get what we don't deserve. I'm saved by grace and there's nothing I can do to earn it. God took the complete initiation in my salvation. He's the one who initiated it. It is by grace alone. That's what this literally says. We are saved by grace alone. And then it says, through faith alone. We're saved by grace alone, but through faith alone. Verse 4 mentions grace alone. Um, Often only grace is mentioned, or often only faith is mentioned. Sometimes they're put together, but the truth is, it's grace alone and faith alone, and we don't understand that. Well, how can it be God's thing and my thing? You have a natural desire, like I do, drink water. Helps. God gave us that desire. But you know what? If God gave me the desire to drink water and that water sat there and I didn't do anything, my tongue would still stick to the roof of my mouth. You know what I have to do? I have to drink it. God has also given each of us a natural thirst for living water. That's that vacuum you feel. That's that hole in your life. That's that missing piece in your life that we try to fill with so many other things that never work out quite right. We were created in the image of God and we have that thirst for living water. But you know what? You have to drink. We're saved by grace alone, but we're saved by faith alone as well. I've said it often. We said it in week one. If you didn't hear week one, go back and listen to it. Remember, the sovereignty of God, God is completely sovereign and runs the universe I have free will to make any choice I want. Those two things, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, are like two rivers that only come together in the mind of God. We will never be able to wrap our puny brains and our finite minds around that. But they are both true. We can't fully comprehend that. We are saved by grace alone. God doesn't. But I am saved through faith alone. I made the choice. You know what I can offer God? Zip. Nada. Nothing. I have nothing to earn my salvation. It's all God. Now I have a choice, but it's all God. It's by grace through faith. But it's not just believing in Jesus. That's why I said earlier that many people who think they're Christians really aren't. I hear this way too often. Are you a Christian? I believe in Jesus. I hear this way too often. I have always believed in Jesus. 
I've always believed in God. Why are you a Christian? I believe in God. I've always believed in God. You know, the Bible says the demons believe and tremble. It's not about believing in Jesus. See this chair here? I believe in this chair. I believe in this chair. That if I sat down in it, like you're all sitting in your chairs, this chair would hold me up. If I stand here and say that and continue speaking, do I really believe in that chair? No. There's only one way, and that's to believe on it. I have to say, I not only believe it, I'm placing my trust here. It's real to me. It's not enough to just believe that the chair will hold me up. I have to believe on it. It's the same thing with Jesus. We say we believe in him, but do we believe on him? Have we placed everything in what he said? It's like we just passed through Christmas time. You get a gift at Christmas. Every gift demands a response. If there's a gift, you have to receive it. It doesn't help anybody if you don't receive the gift. God's given us the ability to receive the greatest gift. It's all him. It's by his grace that Jesus came and died and rose again and ascended to heaven for us. But we have to receive that gift. It says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Can you imagine how bad heaven would be if you could work your way there? Oh, the pride and the bragging and the boasting and the comparing, it would be horrible. Oh, you're only here because you did this. You know what I did? That would not be heaven. The problem is that really rubs some people the wrong way because of their ego and pride. They want to think, I did it. You didn't do it. If you think you did it, you may not have it because God did it. It's by grace through faith. But isn't this amazing? It's not because of what I've done. It's all what Jesus did. I choose. But it's by grace, through faith, not as a result of works. But here's what I think has been a problem with kind of the church world as a whole. We emphasize that grace, and rightly so. We just sang an incredible song about grace before I came up here. And, and it, it always just brings tears to my eyes to think about that. So it's good for us to emphasize grace. Grace is amazing. It's by grace. It's through faith, not by works. But then we forget or skip over what comes next. It's like, it's by grace through faith. I'm in. We're good. It doesn't stop there. Many people know Ephesians 2, 8, 9, but they don't know verse 10. It starts with the word for. That's a connective word. We're saved by grace through faith, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. To really understand salvation, I said you have to understand all three words, by, through, and for. We are saved by grace, through faith, for good works. So if I'm truly saved, what God has worked in my life through salvation, by grace, through faith, I will work out in my life through my good works. I'm not saved by works, but works show that I've received the work of Jesus on the cross. Remember what Jesus said, um, not on the screen, but in John 15, he said, you show yourselves to be true followers of mine when you bear fruit. 
That's what Jesus said. When things happen and when you're doing something, that demonstrates that you really do have it. And if you really don't do that, you might not really have it. Now, I'm certainly not minimizing or saying we should minimize his love or grace or mercy. But we don't work for our salvation. We work it out. God works it in. We work it out. That's what Philippians 2 says. So back to Ephesians 2, verse 10. Again, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. The word workmanship, in NIV it says his handiwork. In other translations it says his masterpiece. When I tell you what word that is, you will almost instantly think of an English word that we get from this word. When it says we are his workmanship, the word is poema. It's where we get the word poem. I am God's poem. I am his masterpiece. You are his masterpiece. And you were created not just for yourself. You were created not just to consume, not just to sit and soak and sour. You were created for good works, to do what he prepared for you to do. That's why it all happened. The truth is, that's where the abundant life is. That's where the real life is. That's where the joy is. That's where the peace is. And too many people, they walk through the by grace, through faith, and stop. And they wonder why their lives are bleh. Because they haven't moved to the whole purpose of it. It's for Obedience for good works so that we can do what he prepared for us to do. Works, it's working out our salvation. See, you can do things I can't do. I can do things you can't do. He's prepared us as well as the good works that each of us is supposed to do. And it's mind-boggling to realize that before the, the universe was created, he was preparing things for you to do. That's amazing. How do we do that? It's the same answer as it is to many questions in life. Spend time with God in his word every day. Spend time getting this into here, into your heart. Being in the word, when we do that, that gets it inside of us. And then when we pray, that activates it. That moves it out of the realm of I just know it or feel it in my heart to it's actually activating it. And Ephesians tells us there's another way that you can do that, and that's through suffering. It's like, yeah, that's not my favorite way either. But when we're suffering, it says, God uses suffering in our life for many things. He's a cause it, but he can use it, not the least of which drives me back to his word and to prayer. But it helps me to grow. It helps me to see the things that I should be doing and the things that he's prepared for me to do. And I always look at it like when people ask me, you know, I, I got to find something to do. I look at it as like the Nike thing, the Nike slogan. Just do it. Just do something. What if it's not the right thing? We'll tell you. You'll probably know before us. Just do it, okay? It's like you, you've all seen big ships. You know, maybe you've been to Duluth. You've seen big ships in the harbor. They got this thing called a rudder that turns. And that turns a ship. If the ship is setting there, not moving, and the rudder turns, what happens? Nothing. It's got to be moving. Your life is the same way. I'm not really afraid anymore. When I say I'm stepping out in faith because God told me to do this, I told you this. Often that means I'm 51% sure. 
And I know this, if I start moving because I'm trusting God and I believe what he says and I'm going the wrong direction, he'll turn me around. But he can turn me around because I'm moving. And and I'm doing something because I was created for good works. God works in, we work out. There's stuff for us to do. So your conversion, my conversion, is not the end game. It's just the beginning game. I've learned that there's a lot of places. There's a lot of different ways to get places in this area. A lot of, a lot of back roads, a lot of alternate roads, and I love exploring all those on my motorcycle. I'll tell you, it's been warm lately. If I lived on a paved road, I would have been out. My driveway's ice. Did you know how many different ways there are just to get to Cambridge? How many alternate ways to get there? I've discovered dozens of them, some of them quicker, some of them more scenic, some of them just more fun, okay? Here's the thing. When it comes to heaven, there are not a bunch of alternate ways. Many people say it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. The Bible says one way. We have to believe not just in Jesus, but on Jesus we have a second chair here. I could very easily say, this, is, this chair is what the Bible says. This is Jesus. This is the way. But you know what? I kind of like this chair. Looks like it would get me the same place. All roads lead to heaven, right? And I can believe in this. The Beatles did this kind of way too often. They tried to pick alternate routes. And you discover that those alternate routes don't lead where you want to go. But I look at this and I say, I think that's good. And if I place my trust in this, it would be the same as placing my trust in that, right? All I've got to do is sit down here, and, and it goes, like, stabs me in that big butt with this thing right here. <laughs> they weren't the same, but they look the same. And it doesn't end well, and too many people think, I can get to heaven my way. You know how many times I've had people tell me, I tell them about my faith in Jesus Listen to me. I tell them how much God is doing. It's like, well, I'm so glad that works for you. Here's what I do. It's like, wait, wait, wait. See, the problem is, no other way will turn out. It matters where you put your faith. You put your faith in a broken chair, and things are going to collapse. There is only one way, and that's Jesus. You say, it's really narrow-minded of you. Yeah, that's okay. Because I didn't say it. Jesus did. He says, John 14, 6. When they ask him where he was going, how do we get there, whatever, Jesus answers this way. I am, and that's a claim to be God, by the way. Ego emi. It's one of God's names. I am who I am. That's what that says. I am the way. Definite article. I'm not a way. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Matthew 7, Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter. And it's real easy to get there, to destruction. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. It's available to everybody. But only a few find it, because they're all looking at their own ways instead of Jesus' way. Jesus says later on in that same chapter, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Again, it's about obedience. 
It's not saying that you go to heaven because you do this. It's saying if you are saved, you will do this. It's a demonstration of it. By grace, through faith, for good works. So we talked first week about identity, second week about capacity, this week about security. My salvation is secure because I didn't do anything to earn it. And that means I can't do anything to keep it. Here's just a few hooks that you can hang your hope on. I struggled with this early in my walk with Jesus, and I don't want you to have to struggle with this. If you struggle with assurance of salvation or if you struggle with security, I would suggest memorizing these. John 10, 27 to 30, phenomenal verses. Jesus says, My sheep, the ones who are followers of me, listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So you get the picture of being in the hand of Jesus. In verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I am in Jesus' hand. We are in God's hand. He and the Father are one. There is no safer place to be. In 1 John 4.13, it talks about what we talked about the first week. This is how we know that we live in Him and He in us. This is how you know you're saved. He has given us His Spirit. We talked about that in our identity. We get, when we claim Jesus as Savior and step across that line, we get the Holy Spirit in us. And Romans 8 says that Spirit, the Spirit Himself, testifies with our spirit together that we are God's children. This is not on the screen. You might write the reference out if you want from 1 John 3, verse 19 to 24, but it says this. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. I want you to know that you belong to the truth. And when you come to Him to have your heart at rest, in his presence. Here's how you know. If our hearts condemn us, which happens often, you wake up tomorrow morning, it's like, I don't feel saved. Did you feel saved yesterday? Yeah. But I don't feel saved today. Your salvation is not based on your feeling. It's by grace, through faith, for good works. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. Again, it's about obedience. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son Jesus and to love one another as he commanded us. Love God, love people. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. You're saved by grace. You're saved through faith. But you're saved for good works. All of those things work together. It's about obedience. Formerly, I was obeying the wrong things the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, I'm obeying and following Jesus. Not to get saved, but to show that I'm saved. I'd like to ask you to bow your heads as we pray. Father, I know that many, many here understand a little bit about church and religion. They may have gone to church all their life. And they understand a little bit about the grace. They understand a little bit about some of this stuff, but... It's not being demonstrated in their life. It's not the, 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 the works that they were created for to demonstrate this masterpiece that they are, to demonstrate to the world around them the amazing grace that God gives through what he did in Jesus through us. They haven't caught on to that. And my prayer, Father, is that anyone in here who's already stepped across that line from unbelief to belief would realize that 
although it is by grace, it is through faith, it doesn't end there. It's for good works. It's for us to do what he has planned in advance for us to do. Help us not to look at, at what others are doing or desire what others are doing. Help us to see what you planned for us and do that. And Father, for anybody who's never stepped across that line, I pray that today they would realize that because of your love for us, that we get your mercy, that we, we don't get the punishment we deserve, but we get the grace that which we didn't deserve. And we can be saved by grace when we choose to accept you. By grace, through faith, for good works. We love you. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Please stand for the closing song.